Jesus once asked some fishermen to leave their nets and follow him. This meant they had to change their identity and their focus. They had to learn the ways of a new work, to connect their hearts to a new mission, to build new relationships, to give their time and resources, and allow a new character to be built within them. We may not be fishermen, but Jesus still calls us to and disciples us in a new life. So, will you leave your net when Jesus asks you? Some of you, if you've been around for a while, will remember this story. But right after Megan and I moved here about 13 and a half years ago, we needed to buy a new washer and dryer. So we had them delivered and they needed pedestals. And I was too cheap to pay for the pedestals originally, but you had to get down on your knees to get, do it. So we thought, okay, let's get the pedestals. Well, the pedestals came and they wouldn't install them. So I decided that I would just install them myself. And I thought the wise thing to do would be to call a couple of people and have them come over and help me. But since the wise way is not the way I always take, I thought, you know what, I think I got this. And I went ahead and I got the dryer up on its pedestal because a dryer really doesn't weigh all that much. And I went to do the washer, I'm like, oh, oh my, this, this weighs a whole lot more than the dryer did. It really would be good for me to wait and call a couple of people. Uh, I, I need some help with this. And then this, this like atavistic guy thing took over me. And I was like, I can do this thing. And I did. And in the process, herniated two discs. I've never been in such pain in my life. And I won't mention any names, but one member of the marital dyad was not particularly sympathetic because she thought I should have asked for help too. And so I kicked myself literally for six months while I was in the stupid back pain of why didn't I ask for help? I needed help. And because I was doggedly determined to just do it on my own, it ended up causing big trouble for me. People need help. We get into trouble when we don't ask for help. Sometimes we just need practical everyday help, like somebody helping you move your washer, or maybe it's some parenting help, or maybe you need some financial help, how to get your finances in order. But then we also need help with some of life's big issues, like how do you find meaning in life? Where do you find hope? Where, where do you find peace? We need help. Most people need help. And we, as Harbor Covenant, have help to offer people. For starters, we know that a relationship with God makes all the difference in the world. And because of that, we focus outward on other people. We want to help people at all levels of their lives and all of their needs. That's our heart. That's God's heart. Our church wants to make a difference in the world. And we want, ultimately, people to know Jesus. In fact, we want to live into this really great verse in 1 Peter 3.15 that says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I mean, think about people that you know and love. People that you wish had the hope that you have in Jesus and how their life would be different. That's our motivation. That's why we want to help people, to bring hope to people. And one of the most effective ways that I have found to engage with people to help change their lives is a program that we did, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago called 3-2-1. It has three stages. 
And there are three levels of intentional engagement with people, and each stage has a different number of people that you're involved with, and they're all designed to help us help people. So that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. And I'm gonna break one of my own rules. One of my rules in preaching is to generally have like one text. Today I have four, you already heard one. But they're really, really good. The first Peter one, always be prepared to give an answer. That's our motivation. But as we talk about three, two, one, I wanna talk about some specific scriptures for each of those to help us understand what we're really getting at. So the first step is threes. There are three people who don't know Jesus yet that you can intentionally engage with. And I want to take us to Mark chapter two, verses one through five, to hone in on this a little bit. Mark writes, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. This might be my favorite passage in all of Scripture. I love this story. And I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what must the backstory of this be? And so I imagine you've got five guys in a small town. Capernaum's not very big. They all grew up together. They were buddies. And maybe somewhere along the line, there was an accident and one of the friends was paralyzed. And nobody ever wants to be paralyzed, but back with no medicine and no hope and no pain relief, I mean, here's the dude that they used to hang out with and run and play and do sports or what have you, you know, and now basically all he can do is lie around. And that means if he has a family, he can't take care of them. And if he doesn't have a family, he's not going to get one. He can't have a job. I mean, it's this miserable existence. But these four other friends, they stick with this guy. And I imagine that he is still a major part of their lives because they're friends. And then one day, Jesus comes to town. And I can just imagine, you know, I mean, big news, small town, and everybody knows that Jesus is there. And I just imagine these four guys sitting around going, what if we could get our friend to Jesus? I think Jesus could help. I think it's the best chance he has for his life to be changed. I mean, they must have had that conversation because they all get together and they grab this guy on his mat and they pick him up and they wander through the streets of Capernaum. And as they get close to where Jesus is, they realize they can't get close to where Jesus is. There's this huge obstacle. So many people have gathered there that the house is full and they're crowding out to the streets. They can't even get close to the block. And so what do they do? What would you do? Well, maybe they were tempted to give up. This isn't gonna work. It was a really good idea, but that's not what they did. They were like, we gotta get our friend to Jesus. We can't get him in the front door, let's take him through the roof. And I love this. 
you know. So some way or another, they get up to the roof of the house, which maybe was palm fronds that were covered with mud, you know, to make it at least somewhat watertight. And they start digging a hole. And at this point, I just imagine Jesus sitting down, you know, in the living room. And all of a sudden, you know, they hear some noise up there and people look around like, what's going on? And all of a sudden, dirt starts falling down on top of the people. I mean, they can't leave and they're all getting covered with dirt and maybe palm fronds start. And the next thing you know, they see this dude looking down. And then they lower their friend to Jesus because they weren't going to stop at anything unless they could get their friend to Jesus. I love that story. At some point or another, they had decided to decide that they were going to engage with him on a deeper level to get him to Jesus. And that's what a three is. It's somebody that we know, somebody that we come into contact with, but somebody that we decide to engage with on a deeper level, hoping that we might get them to Jesus. Now, generally, a three, three threes, generally a three is going to be someone you already know. And it's simply a matter of deciding to know them better. Now, this isn't a one-shot deal. This is an investment. And that's why we limit threes to three, because you can't have a relationship with everybody. You can't care deeply about everyone, but you can care about three other people. You can show an interest in them. And maybe there's two or three people that you can think of off the top of your head. I mean, we all go to the same spots on a regular basis. We go to the same grocery store, we go to the same bank, we go to the same restaurants, we go out with the same people. I mean, yeah, there are other people, but we see the same people over and over and over. So who do you run into that you just have kind of a surface relationship with? that you might be able to intentionally care about and go a little bit further. So this isn't random evangelism. This isn't striking up a conversation about the four spiritual laws of some dude on an airplane. This is about noticing the people that you're already around. I mean, think about servers. Think about people in your coffee group. Think about the family that you sit on the sidelines and watch soccer or baseball with. You probably already have potential threes. But it also might be about seed scattering. Maybe you can't think of anyone in particular, and maybe you just go, I'm just going to intentionally begin to engage and care about some people and just see where God leads it. But that's key. It's an intentional engagement at a deeper level. And we aren't talking about being weird. We aren't talking about showing up at your next poker game and bringing your Bible with you and setting it next to your stack of chips. That would just be weird. What we are talking about is just intentionally going deeper with people. My wife is the queen of this. One, one of my favorite examples was years ago when Safeway got bought out by Hagen for about three weeks. And Megan knew everyone at Safeway. She still does, but this was, this was at this point. And when it turned out that they were going to be sold, Megan would go almost every day to the store and talk to somebody because she already knew them. She would engage them in conversation. How is this going to work for you? Are you still going to have a job? How are you feeling about these people? What is it going to look like? And she could have those conversations with them because she already had those conversations with them. Because she's the type of person that would engage with the checker. She knows all of their names. She knows about how many kids they have. She knows about their backgrounds. She's just really, really good at engaging just a little bit further. And that's what a three looks like. 
So when they were being sold, these people knew that Megan cared about them, and so they shared their life with her. That's the beginning of a three relationship, being open to intentionally caring about the people that might already be in your life, but then moving the conversation to a different level. And that's what she did. When she asked them about, how's the job going? What's gonna happen to you? Are you gonna be all right? It could have just been about the weather, or about the Seahawks, or you know, not the Mariners, because that's just always disappointing. But it's, it's just going to a different level. And sometimes it's just paying attention to what people say. You know, everybody asks the checker how they are. You know, but what if the checker, the person that sees you every week goes, I'm having a bad day. How many people do you think go, oh, and keep moving? How many people stop and go, oh, I'm really sorry to hear about that. There's not a line. Is there anything I could help with? I mean, just develop that relationship by going just a little bit further. And we talked about this last week, and we've talked about it a lot, particularly in the past, and I wanna just keep bringing it up because it's just such a great thing. So you're talking to the checker, not having a good day. Hey, there's 16 people behind me, but can I pray for you about something specific? And maybe you can't do it right there, but at least now they know that you're gonna pray for them. Or we talk about the example of somebody who had a baby or somebody who's got a promotion. What if somebody got a job promotion and you're like, hey, can I thank God for that? And you pray with them. Hardly anybody is gonna say no. I know this because lots of people have tried it and it works. It's just a way to take things to a different level and show people, one, that you heard what they said, and two, that you actually care enough to engage with them. But here's a really important point. We're not talking about manipulation. We aren't talking about having any other agenda other than just loving people and then walking through whatever door God opens. So find three people who do not know Jesus yet and begin to care about them. And the point of a three is ultimately to make them a two. So twos, invest in two people who already know Jesus. The, the first, the threes, that helps us reach our first organizing principle of reaching people for Christ. The twos, investing in people who already know Jesus, that helps address our second organizing principle, making disciples who make disciples. This is us investing in people who, and bringing them along in the Jesus way. So there's this kind of interesting biblical passage in Acts chapter 15 that just stuck with me about this. Acts 15, 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, if you've ever read this passage before, what you probably focused on was the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. It's when they've been partners and they kind of separate and they both pick a, a protege and they go a different way. Paul has no use for John Mark because apparently Paul thinks that John Mark is not reliable. He's already abandoned them once. But Barnabas, not so much. Barnabas knows that John Mark is, is a flake, but Barnabas sees something in John Mark. And Barnabas believes that with a little help and a little training, 
that he can make something of John Mark, or something can be made of John Mark at any rate. And so Barnabas takes John Mark with him and invests, with, invests in him. He brings him along on the journey. He walks with them. Barnabas teaches him the Jesus way. And that's really the core of discipleship. That's what Jesus does. He invites people to come and do life with him. Just come follow me around, see how I react to people, see how I engage with God, see how I engage with God's word, see how I serve people, see how I love. And that's what Barnabas does with John Mark. He just brings him along with him. And I imagine the conversations that they might have had, but it all comes because Barnabas decided to engage. When I was in high school, the church that I went to had a summer camp every year at Kings Canyon National Park. And it wasn't an organized camp, we just rented a group camp and brought a couple hundred high school and junior hires up there for two weeks. And for three or four years, Irv Hughes asked me if I wanted to come with him to help set up camp. And so we would go three days ahead of time and we would level out spots for the tent and we would set up the cook tent and we would just prepare the camp. And the entire time, Irv just poured his life into me. He talked to me about Jesus, he talked to me about his experiences. He answered all of my questions about faith and dinosaurs and how things work. And I can just remember, and he was in his 70s at the time, and I was, what, 17, 18. And I just remember feeling so amazed that some guy wanted to spend time with me. And I will never forget, we were done for the day, and we went for a walk, and we were just talking about life. And he turned and he looked at me and he said, I think I enjoy being with you as much as I do anybody. And that just meant the world to me. I mean, he invested in me and I learned what it's like to be a man. I learned what it's like to be a man of God by following Irv Hughes. And I think that's what happened to John Mark. Because if you follow the, uh, the scriptures along a little bit, uh, later on when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, he refers to John Mark as his fellow worker. And in his very final letter, 2 Timothy, Paul writes that John Mark was very useful to his ministry. And church history tells us that John Mark became the first bishop of Alexandria, and he also wrote the Gospel of Mark. And none of that would have happened if Barnabas hadn't decided to invest in John Mark. So who do you know? That has potential? Who do you know that you could invest in? Who do you believe in? If you have kids, it might be your kids. How are you intentionally showing your kids how to be a Jesus follower? Who are two people that you know that you could intentionally invest in who already know Jesus? And then last are the ones. One person, but this person speaks into your life. And this is one of the chief ways that we grow as disciples. And this passage is from Exodus chapter 18. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you're doing is not good. 
You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I'll give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from among all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judge for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Number ones might be the hardest of the three two ones, but it also might be the most important. Because if Moses hadn't listened to his father-in-law, who knows what would have happened. He would have burned out it would have been all over. And it's important to us too. If we aren't healthy, then we end up being on what they used to call the disabled list. We can't be used by God. And if God can't use us, then there's gonna be all these people that you're around, at the store, at your place of employment, in your friend circle, in your family, there will be all these people who will not have someone bringing hope and peace into their lives because you're on the DL. This is one of the chief ways that we stay healthy. Now Moses, I mean, Moses is the lawgiver. Moses and God are like this. I mean, Moses is way up there. Moses has insight and Moses has wisdom, but Moses also had a blind spot. Moses thought he could do it all. He was motivated by good stuff. He wasn't motivated by bad stuff, but his father-in-law could tell that he was gonna kill himself. And Moses' father-in-law cares about him enough to talk to him. I mean, that's Jethro's motivation. He's like, you're going to kill yourself. And if you do what I tell you, then you'll be all right. He sees that Moses is headed for trouble. And Moses is willing to listen and change. And that's why having a one can be really hard. Because a lot of us, like me and the washer, decide we can just do it ourselves. We don't need anybody's help. But that just ain't true folks. Moses had the humility to listen to somebody who he knew loved him, who had his best in mind, and he saw from a different perspective. Now, if you think about it from Moses, he wanted to do what worked. He wanted to do what was best for him and for the people. His ego wasn't tied up in being right, and that might be an issue for some of us. Some of us have to be right, and if you have to be right, then this is going to be a struggle for you. Moses was tied up, not tied up in being right. He wanted to do what was right. It wasn't too long ago, I was sitting with a really good friend, and out of the blue, he said to me, can I confront you about something? And I'm like, well, with the level of our friendship, I know that the right answer to the question is, yes, of course you can, but I'm not really feeling that, but oh, okay. And so he did. It wasn't a big deal, but he gave me an example of something and he said you, you need to stop doing that and you need to stop doing that because it's affecting people in a negative sort of way and I was like really I, I didn't realize that he's like oh yeah yeah and then he gave me some examples and I was like dang you're right and I realized that it was a gift that I had somebody who would say to me 
stop doing that because it wasn't accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. I just couldn't see that. So do you have somebody who knows you well enough that they can tell you the truth about your life? Do you know someone who knows you well enough that when you're headed down the wrong path or you're just doing the wrong thing, they can talk to you about it? Now, be careful here. This is not an opportunity for the opinionated among us to share their thoughts about what's wrong with other people's lives. This, is, this can only happen in a relationship that's already deep. This can only happen in a relationship where there is already permission that's given, but more permission is given. And this is so important because I have rarely seen anyone make a life-altering, horrifically bad choice who is deeply known by another person and then who had enough good sense to listen to their input. We need those relationships all the time, but we need them particularly when we're going through a rough patch. If you're going through a difficult time or a tragedy, man, reach out to a friend that will walk through it with you. Find somebody with whom you can be brutally honest, who can be brutally honest with you about the choices that you're making. The stakes are just too high. You can't go through it alone. I have endless numbers of tragic stories, but this one is fresh. I had coffee uh, last week with a friend of mine that I've known for forever, and we just sort of, you know, he moved to the East Coast, I don't see him very often. We got together for coffee, and we were just catching up. And we had a mutual friend that worked together with in ministry, and had accomplished great things that I just always really enjoyed. And so I said to my friend, hey, so you must still keep up with, and I named this person, and he's like, who? And I'm like, you know, so-and-so. And he's like, oh, I haven't talked to them in years. He's like, did you not hear what happened? And I'm like, no, I didn't hear what happened. And he had a wife, kids, job, you know, ministry. He wasn't in ministry, layperson, but heavily involved in ministry. And this is how my friend characterized it. One day he decided that he wasn't happy and he decided to make some choices in his life so that he would be happy. So he left his wife and he left his kids. And the worst part about it was he wouldn't listen to anybody. His friends came to him and said, you're making a mistake, do not do this thing. And he wouldn't listen. And tragic on so many levels, but this really hit me probably most, is my friend said his sons hate him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. And then like all of that could have been avoided if he would have listened to somebody who tried to tell him the truth. You get into more trouble when you decide you're not happy and you need to do what it takes to be happy. You need somebody who'll speak truth into your life. Now, ones can take several different forms. It can be a traditional mentoring relationship. It might be a spiritual friendship. I've even been in a co-one relationship where we were each one another's ones. There, there, there's no hard and fast rules, but who is there who will speak truth into your life that you will listen to? And this is so important in so many ways. Uh, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of Simon Sinek's things or, um, or read any of his books, but one of the books that he uh, wrote was called Leaders Eat Last. And at the end of that, he tells this great story. I'm just going to read it for you. You want to know the whole secret to AA? John, a recovering alcoholic, asked me. You want to know who actually gets sober and who doesn't? Few, if any of the alcoholics enrolled in AA will find sobriety 
until they complete step 12. Even if they make it through all the other 11 steps, those who do not complete step 12 are very likely to drink again. It's those who complete step 12 who overcome the addiction. Step 12 is the commitment to help another alcoholic beat the disease. It's only when an alcoholic decides to help somebody else that statistics say they'll beat the disease. I think that holds true for Christians too. As we begin to pour our lives into other people, it only means good things for us. Our discipleship increases as we help to disciple and reach other people. Investing in other people's lives changes them, but also changes us. Now, in the fall, we'll have mentor training, and we'll have some help for matching people up. Maybe you're a mentor and you would love to mentor somebody, but you don't know anybody. Maybe you would love a mentor or you don't have one. Maybe you need help figuring out what to do with twos. How do you disciple people? We will have all of those resources available. In the meantime, what I want to challenge all of us to do is to lay some groundwork. Begin to think about who might be a three, who might be a two, who could be a one. Begin to pray about those things and maybe even start a relationship. But if you hit a wall or you need something, know that help is coming. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, who could be your threes? People that you intentionally care about. Number two, who could be your twos? People that you're helping to grow in their relationship with Jesus. And question number three, not gonna follow the pattern. Why would it be hard for you to have a one, someone who speaks into your life?